hello, everybody. I'm Pauline Costin, your co-host. My name is Rachel, and I'm also a co-host here. Welcome to Gen Z's Guide to Politics. Today, we're going to talk about influential Black women in history, specifically around, like, the civil rights era slash, like, a little bit after. Um, And we're going to start with our intro topic about this new movie that we touched on last time called Um, The Lost City. The Lost City. So yes, last week we talked about in our intro how Daniel Radcliffe is going to be Weird Al Yankovic. And I also told a very short story about how I met the Daniel Radcliffe legend, icon, star. And it was fun. If you haven't listened to the first episode, go give it a listen. But he's also going to be in another movie with a bunch of other star-studded people and everything so the the lost city it's called yeah or- it's just like they're like sandra bullock's like an artist or she's like no i'm sorry she's like an author and she goes to this like the forest and gets kidnapped by daniel radcliffe like and aka his name is like fairfax that he's a villain and his name is fairfax and then channing tatum tries to rescue her but i think fails they throw like a car off a cliff and then like brad pitt with very like luxurious locks and like slow-mo comes to save them i don't know it seems like very ridiculous but the kind of ridiculous that i'm going to go to the theaters to see like three times wow that's like a whole casserole of stuff just tossed in there but um i was gonna say (laughs) when you mentioned so okay daniel radcliffe fairfax known as fairfax now is the villain but he's really short and i'm wondering so he's like five five i think i wonder how they're gonna like and not that like you know not sizes here or heightest nothing like that but i will say i feel like it would be a really interesting take fun fact about short people though so Tony, the guy that plays Tony Stark, which is Robert Downey Jr., um, he's also a very short man, and they made him wear heels in all of his appearances. So there's like these little set pictures of him walking around in like heels. It's not like lady heels, so it's not like a point and whatever, but it's just like these like platform boots that are like five inches, and he looks like such a little diva. And every time those pictures, it just makes my like my my soul twitch a little bit to happiness (laughs) i love that that's so funny that must look so funny it's like okay we're gonna need five inch platform boots please because apparently Gwyneth paltrow is actually pretty tall but i've heard some very kooky things about her yeah my mom hates Gwyneth paltrow i don't know she is a little bit weird and i don't really get the whole thing with her like health company i feel like that's so pseudoscience-y kind of like sus but So maybe one day I'll like ask my mom to come on the podcast and be like, hey, there's something about Gwyneth Paltrow in the news. If you have a take for us. (laughs) Yeah, I know she because her company Goop, she has a company Goop, um, which the name alone is like a little bit. Oh, yeah. uh, She turned her vagina into a candle. Yeah, she was like, this candle smells like my vagina. But apparently... Apparently the candles exploded and stuff. Yeah, I did you a lot of bad things about it. And I'm not about like I'm not gonna put it past like that that's not necessarily like a profitable thing because as we were shown in like I think like 2014, people will just buy bath water from people. Like they yeah. buy bath water. So it would make sense that Gwyneth Paltrow will go, hmm, 
I'm going to make a candle that smells like my vagina. People are going to buy it. I also heard the candle smelled terrible. Like, it didn't smell like a vagina. Like, when you burned it, it smelled terrible. Like, oh, yeah. I heard terrible. And, like, her company apparently still gets terrible reviews. And the only people that buy her products are, like, middle-aged women. No, that would make sense. No, it's it's weird. I'm sure that doesn't help, like, the the stigma of women's bodies, like, not being nice. But either way. That's an, yeah. to talk for another day, probably another episode, honestly. I think that like uh, it's interesting to see how she kind of has taken this market of like, oh, like, I don't know. What even is this market? It's weird. I just think the goop market is very strange. Oh, they sell pans on their, their website. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and ritual set for yoga. Of course. Yeah. can't be a rich white woman without yoga of course yeah you know is really not okay but that's a that's a take for another day no truly truly speaking of you know takes on women like Gwyneth Paltrow and people who are not like Gwyneth Paltrow so I guess not really speaking of but anyway so yeah, like Pauline was saying, uh, this week, we're going to talk about some awesome ladies from the civil rights era movements. We want to draw all the awesome connections that we can make back to modern day movements as well. Because uh, I feel like personally, there's always times when I look back at uh, different parts or people or like events from history. And I feel like I learn a lot about like where the things that I see now in activism and just in my general life, like where they came from before. So, yeah. Yeah. I think it'll be a good chat today. Yeah. And obviously happy black history month. I meant to say that at the beginning, <laughs> but hopefully this month we plan on doing a few more episodes also to talk about a few more things that have like aided African-American people and, you know, just a lot about, Black History Month and stuff like that. And that's where obviously the influential Black women come from. And so. Yes. And one thing I think we think is so important is touching on these people specifically because a lot of the time, especially historically, uh, Black women and also um, Black just people who, you know, were non-binary or even trans activists as well, you know, we're sort of not as much in the limelight or the spotlight as some of the other activists that we know really well. So we want to talk about like a variety of different people throughout, you know, history and everything and, you know, how they also influenced uh, the people who we do hear more about because all of them definitely go hand in hand together. It's just the people that we usually hear about are like, you know, like Martin Luther King, Harriet Tubman, Malcolm X, and all those people are absolutely amazing. But like, they're, they're not the only people that were part of the movement. And that's kind of where we're going to talk about Dorothy Height today. Um, she was born in 1921. She did unfortunately pass away in 2010. She was a civil rights activist and uh, a woman's right activist and many other things, but she organized the March on Washington. She was one of the people that organized it. And if you don't know what the March on Washington it is, like the I Have a Dream by MLK, and she was not allowed to speak, even though she had won several awards throughout her life for, you know, beautiful, like delivering beautiful speeches and writing great speeches. And she later said, like within her life, that her male counterparts were happy to include women in the human family. But there was no question as to who was the head of the household, referring to men, and that even within the Black community, 
like perspective and the way that black men saw black women was that they had no place in events like this. Yeah, Dorothy Height definitely was very influential in helping out Martin Luther King Jr., who, again, like Pauline said, is usually one of the people that is talked about a lot in like educational spheres, like especially when kids are learning about civil rights, which again, yeah, is great. But I know like personally, I never heard about Dorothy Height. One thing I also uh, thought was really interesting was that, um, you know, Dorothy Height was definitely responsible for a lot of the behind the scenes stuff that people didn't see or maybe people didn't know about as much, not just for organizing like marches and events that shaped a lot of the historical events that we know today. But she was also a huge mediator in terms of conversation between different ideologies, different groups that were getting involved. And so one example of this, when she, you know, would go to these meetings because she was super active in a lot of these organizations that we talked about, she, when she would go to these pre-event things where they were trying to figure details out, or they were trying to kind of mediate between parties, you know, and navigate these very difficult waters of how are we going to be able to do this? She was largely a mediator for a lot of these conversations of varying philosophies, but especially between white women and Black civil rights leaders. So I think that that is something that's really important to point out, especially because that was something that we didn't learn about how much that conversation had to go on and how much had to be discussed and everything. I think oddly enough, when we think about like the civil rights movement and like even as a like as a black person i wasn't really told about a lot of it in my household even and especially at school it kind of just as a young child it seemed like it was just like okay black people didn't have rights boom now they have rights and it kind of just felt like this like quick motion thing and i don't think a lot of times we talk about what these people had to go through and like the way that they get awarded for it. And I think when I was reading about Dorothy Height, because I didn't really know a lot about Dorothy Height until I started doing research, but she has the credentials to prove of how much hard work she put in. She won a presidential medal of freedom in 1994 and a congressional gold medal in 2004. She was the president of the National Council of Negro Women in 1957. She had been very much a popular activist, even like from high school, she would talk about how much she like couldn't stand for lynching and she like organized and was active in anti-lynching like campaigns and she earned like a bachelor's and a master's like degree in psychology and she even met Eleanor Roosevelt um and she also directed the integration of like the w the ywca centers which from my understanding was like when like black people and white people would like mingle like she organized that so like black people and white people would use the same facility she did just so many things and i just think it's amazing that like they weren't things that we talked about in school because i can't i don't know if rachel can like tell me a time that she might have ever heard of dorothy height because I can't. No, I, I genuinely, you know, thinking back to my, like my elementary school years, especially, because I think that like, yes, obviously, like there's certain things that children are going to be able to retain. And then there's certain things that like the complexities, you know, might be too much for them to understand. But I think that like, 
as a kid, I feel like I definitely could have understood that like, okay, you know, before they had to, before they, you know, did this big march, like there was a lot of like negotiations that had to go on because people didn't want them to like, um, to be able to do that. Uh, so I think like there could have been opportunities there, but I definitely don't ever really recall those being kind of acted upon. Yeah. I, I can't really, I didn't learn about Dorothy Height. I could say that for sure. <laughs> until, until now, of course. She also, one of the other things that she did was she founded the National Women's Caucus. And she also, from my understanding, established the Center for Racial Justice in 1965. And she also helped run the Young Women's Christian Association. So she spent very much of her life doing lots and tons of things. And I just, I remember in fifth grade, we learned about Harriet Tubman, Rosa Parks, and MLK. And pretty much from fifth grade to sixth to I think all the way until eighth grade is like what we like. That was like, those were the only people that we learned about. And all those people are great. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying, why were we retaught about the same like five people every single year? Like, why did they never come back to touch on anybody else? And I don't know like what other schools look like around like the country, but I know like where I went to school at, it wasn't like that. Like they taught us about the same five people during Black History Month. And then that was it. Yeah. I'm trying to remember when I kind of first, like when I can first recall learning about it and like how that changed as I got older. Cause, but yeah, I think that like in elementary school, which probably was until I got to fifth or sixth grade, I would say really, I really only ever learned about like Martin Luther King, everything that he had done for the movement. But really even the extent of that was kind of the, I have a dream speech. Uh, And then it was like, I remember moving. And when I moved schools, it was like they did. um, They still talked about Martin Luther King and everything. But uh, yeah, Rosa Parks was a big one. Harriet Tubman. We talked about Barack Obama a little bit just because like that was, you know, I was in those grades when he was like president um, and when, you know, the election was happening and everything. And I knew from my parents about like a couple different influential black people, but I didn't know any, really any of these leaders. Um, Like, I think I knew about, uh, I learned a little bit about Selma and that like the march uh, there and everything. And I learned about John Lewis as well. I can't even say that we learned about John Lewis, like confidently. I can't say that. Yeah, I definitely, I didn't learn about him in school, but I think he I think he was in one of my textbooks if I remember right but I literally think we like skipped over that lesson which is so effed up no I don't remember I just said like yeah no (laughs) (laughs) I just I I just think it like and that's why we're obviously like while we're doing the podcast is because so many people don't know who these people are and they had such a huge influence like and people don't even realize it like like I know Dorothy Heights has a lot to do with bell hooks. Yeah. So, so Pauline touched on how Dorothy Height had mentioned, you know, the way that women were excluded, you know, to a certain point, like they were, they were allowed to be there until they weren't, you know, like they had their place in the movement and other people uh, really, uh, you know, men (laughs) had theirs uh, and everything. So, and she had that quote about the family and everything, which like, snaps to that. I'm like, yes. And that really goes to show, you know, she was one of the first ones who really did sort of see how gender and like, and sex crossed over with 
race and the way that those two issues uh, are so intertwined. And so that brings up a really great uh, segue to Bell Hooks, who is um, another one of the wonderful, influential leaders we're going to be talking about today. But that sort of idea of, you know, those two things being intertwined or there being a lot of other, you know, crossover with different aspects of identity was something that Miss Height was able to kind of lay the groundwork for and lead that idea and uh, have, you know, bell hooks, um, as well as so many other, you know, influential activists as well. Uh, Bell hooks specifically talked a lot about this and that idea of intersectionality, uh, which is what that's called intersectionality, just for a quick definition for everybody, it's defined as the interconnected nature of social categorizations such as race, class, and gender as they apply to a given individual or group regarded as creating overlapping and interdependent systems of discrimination or disadvantage. So um, Dorothy Height, like her quote, so perfectly points out this negotiation between different aspects of identity. Uh, which is something that Bell Hooks touched a lot on. So I'm probably going to talk about like the groundwork for Bell Hooks. And then Miss Rachel here is going to go into the groundwork of feminism for us because she is so great at talking about feminism. Uh, (laughs) But Bell Hooks wrote somewhere around about 40 books. And as we talked about, as Rachel mentioned that she talked about class and race and where they played such a great like role in feminism. She was also a poet, an author, and a feminist, and she did pass away in 2021. I think it was December, like, 21st. It was somewhere around that time frame, but it was pretty recently, Um, and she was a professor that taught at Berea College. She influenced several people, several authors that also talked about feminism, authors like, say, Jones and Roxanne Gray, and fun fact, about um, Bell Hooks is that her name is not actually Bell Hooks. She took that name from her great-grandmother and was actually born Gloria Jean Watkins. Yeah, that was something else that was was really interesting to me. But she also made her name lowercase. So when you write like Bell Hooks or when you look at like a cover of one of her books, it won't have like a capital B and a capital H. They'll both be lowercase, which I thought was really interesting. But she did this to show how she wanted to make her work and what she was saying the focus of, you know, uh, how her audience was receiving it rather than it be about like her. So almost as if it was like, hey, you know, I'm writing this book, but it's not it doesn't matter who's writing this book. It matters about the content of the book. Right. It's like pay attention. Feminism, uh, which is kind of like, you know, where Bell Hooks had a huge, huge influence. She wrote quite a few books, as Pauline was saying, um, and a lot of them were sort of on the topic of, you know, race and the intersectionalities that kind of cross over with it. Bell Hooks explored that a lot, and she was part of the second wave of feminism. And the feminist movement is divided up into four different waves, which is determined by the years that were encompassed by um, this movement, right? So it's um, different waves are going to have been active at different times, essentially, uh, and they're going to be associated with different things. So uh, just briefly, the first wave, which was sort of, you know, when Dorothy Height would have been more present. So the first wave is largely like 
you know, women's suffrage and voting rights. Uh, but the first wave is very like white centric and is centered really only around white women. Uh, whereas the second wave is when bell hooks kind of comes into conversation. So this uh, wave of feminism was focused a lot more on, or not a lot more, because obviously we want to acknowledge that there was still a lot of disparity and uh, discrimination going on in the activism that was taking place uh, in terms of the feminist movement here. And gender was still kind of more of a concern than race was in terms of this wave of the movement. But this was when um, more activists of color were kind of able to uh, make space and create space for their communities. So this is about the time that Bell Hooks kind of stepped in, right? Yes. Yeah. So she, um, cause she was active from, she was active from the years. I mean, obviously like she was still kind of active up until now, but so the second wave of feminism really gave base to the idea of um, the combination of gender and race and how people perceive those two things together rather than separately. Intersectionality was kind of a new thing that Bell Hooks really talked a lot more in depth about that hadn't been talked a lot about before. She really brought this aspect of, you know, race and class and other social aspects of our everyday lives and our everyday kind of expression and identity and the way people that, uh, the way that people perceive us. Um, And she brought that into the feminist movement. So this largely uh, would make feminism a lot more accessible to a lot of different people. Uh, She, you know, was able to showcase like this is the way that it's being exclusionary, which is a really powerful thing. And if you read a lot of her writing, it's very much, you know, it's very, it's really good writing and I would recommend everybody read she really was able to paint the picture and kind of make people visualize how these systems work together. And even though I want to also mention, even though the term intersectionality wasn't technically created until eight years later, she was kind of still one of the first people to really write a lot about it. And as we can see, Dorothy Height also was one of the people who was talking a lot about that and laying the groundwork for it. But Kimberly Crenshaw was the person uh, who created this definition of intersectionality and everything. And she's also sort of in the same academic scholarly sphere as Bell Hooks is. Just goes to show that that influence is definitely present and and is there. Yeah, as Rachel was saying, it is a pretty cool thing to think about Bell Hooks was talking about that like, feminism was exclusionary to some people, that Black people didn't have the ability to be a feminist, that Black women didn't have the ability to be feminist or fem- or experience feminism because they had bigger problems to worry about as a Black person. That white women were allowed to put being a woman before being white. And that's a really interesting thing that still applies, I believe, to a lot of marginalized groups and African-Americans and people of color, that it's hard to just go, I'm a woman before I'm Black, because people see that you're Black before that you're a woman. And it's still something that's very prevalent in our conversations today. And it's important to remember that just because Bell Hooks isn't with us anymore, that her work is just as prevalent as it was prevalent as it was 50 years ago. Exactly. Uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, who I mentioned a second ago, she's part of the third wave of feminism, right? So we think about like how, you know, Bell Hooks is really active during the second wave of feminism. Uh, Then we have a third wave 
feminist, also a woman of color, who is then, you know, continuing to really grow these seeds and let these flowers bloom, you know, bringing these ideas more to fruition, which I think is like such a, a really awesome, beautiful thing. But the um, that goes into a little bit. So the fourth wave of feminism, which us Gen Zers are living in now, <laughs> And, you know, this wave of feminism is one that's still, we're still living in and we're ushering in as well uh, and has really developed over the last decade. But this movement, and we can definitely look at the last few years, you know, we have the the Me Too movement and, you know, destigmatizing sex work and like everything being very digital and the spread of information being really valuable. Uh, And I think that we can also kind of see the parallels between, you know, bell hooks and talking about intersectionality and, and everything. So, um, you know, this wave of feminism that we're living in, we can see that those ideas of gender and race and uh, your sexuality and, you know, if you're a queer person or if you are um, a trans or non-binary person, uh, your income, your class, where you came from all those things go together. And I think that's something that is also being talked more about and built on a lot in, you know, the last decade or so as well. Most definitely. And before we continue, because I'm sure what we're probably, I think next, what we're going to talk about is one of her books, which is called Anti-Woman. And it's a little, it can be a little heavy on the heart, especially if you're a Black person, because the things that she talks about in the book are definitely experiences that many Black women go through. So really quick, before we go any further, I'm going to ask Rachel, first, like, experience, like, going, I'm going to be a feminist, because mine was when I was, like, I was 15, and I was like, why do we wear bras? This is dumb. And I, like, Oh my God, I would rip off my bra violently, record me throwing my bra like outside into a fire pit. And like, I would be like, free the nip. And that, that was my like adventure into becoming a, like somebody who talks about feminist rights and women's rights. <laughs> that is so iconic. Oh my God. Uh, Rachel. Have any? Do you have any memories like that? Oh, oh my God! Yeah, actually, mine has to do with a bra too. Funny, <gasps> funny, right? Oh my God! And this is like, yeah. But I love that. We love bra burning. That's so awesome. So, I when I was nine, uh, and this is kind of a really interesting story. It's a very weird story, but I was nine, and um, my family had just moved states. So I had moved from like Massachusetts to New Jersey. Wow. And yeah, which is like, you know, pretty far away away and everything. But I like I had moved from a really big school to a school that only had like a very small number of kids. So like I was I think like the 10th person to move in to my grade like and be a part of like my grade. So like there was only like one class per grade, like max 20 kids or something, right? So very small school. And I was someone who like, I hit puberty super young, super, super young. So it was sort of a thing of like, I had boobs in the third grade. You know what I mean? Like my school nurse, I think it was like a couple months into me living there. My school nurse makes a phone call home to my mom. Right. <laughs> and my mom's like, Oh, like, cause you know, this, she picks up the phone. The school nurse is like, Oh, like this lady is also like for context. The school nurse is like, looks like she could be a hundred talk. Oh, 
like talks like a pterodactyl, like very raspy voice. Um, I think she was a nurse in the war, so like very. What war? Are you talking about World yeah, War Two? I, I don't know. <laughs> Honestly, I have no idea. But Jesus, why was she still working? I, I know, like she was. Yeah, she honestly, I think she like she might still be working. Honestly, I like anyway. Uh, but she she was like, yeah, I'm gonna work till I die. I was like, wow, okay, okay, capitalism. I see you. Uh, <laughs> but she um she calls my mom on our landline because this was when landlines were still like a thing, and she's like, oh hi, like this is the school nurse um and everything. And then my mom was like, oh, like, you know, uh, are the kids okay? Because it was like me and my younger brother were both there. And so um, she's like, you know, are are they okay? Like, is something wrong? What's going on? Um, And she was like, no, you know, like nothing's wrong. Like, they're okay. Um, I just wanted to call you actually because I heard, uh, what did she say? This woman had the audacity. She's like, I heard uh, Rachel's teacher like came to me and I heard some stuff too, like, uh, you know, all the boys in her grade and like some of the older boys are like uh, making jokes about her having a chest and like sexualizing her. And like, I just don't want her to hear about it. So like, you should like really go out and buy her a bra. Like, I think she needs to wear a bra. Are you serious? I am dead ass serious. That's not like, what? That is so... Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I go home and my mom is like trying to tell me this and I'm like, what? I'm like nine years old. I'm like, what even like, I don't know anything about like bras or like why I'm like, why do I have to wear a bra? Like none of my friends have to wear a bra. I don't want to wear one. They're uncomfortable and everything too. Cause they look very uncomfortable. Definitely. And you know, it's like, and they are sometimes very uncomfortable. Yeah. So it's like, and this was like before they had like cute airy bralettes or like, you know, the like soft, like lacy shit. We're talking about like, okay, so like as a child, like training balls literally looked like a torture device from like the 19th century. They were fine. Yeah. It's like, damn, that's, that's goes under my shirt. I have to wear that under my, sh- like, you know? So I was like, oh my god so then it was like this whole thing because my mom was like well and my mom too is badass hippie feminist like queen legend but she was like well is terrified of this nurse because she is very intimidating thing and I was like oh my god I don't want to wear a bra I don't want to wear a bra and I was so angry because I was like what is the difference between like my body and like the body of another one of my nine-year-old friends that like I'm being sexualized or like I'm being sexualized or I'm having to wear a bra, but like they aren't like what's wrong, you know? So like, yeah, they, like when that happened, I think that was the inciting incident. I didn't quite know it yet, but oh boy, do I look back now and I'm like, yeah, there's no way. There's no way I would have ever subscribed to patriarchy ever. <laughs> terrible, but fortunately enough, both of our stories lead in to one of Bell Hook's famously books, famous books called Anti-Woman. This book was specifically to discuss the intersection of sexism and racism that was shaping the experience of Black women, specifically in America. Um, this book was considered revolutionary for the time that it was released, and even now. Um, she discussed the way that gender plays a huge role in the perception of people of color and what we assume about them, the historical connections of these ideas, and how they were solidified within the cultural 
and structural bodies of the United States. Um, one thing that the book points out, for example, is the way that slavery has shaped our view of Black women um, inherently, which is hypersexual and seductive. Um, this is because of the way that white wives painted black women who were raped by their husbands and not just that that a lot of times black women being raped was it didn't really have a lot to do about like sexual desire it had a lot to do with i'm raping you because i hold power over you and um fun tidbit that i really wanted to mention not because it makes me excited but because it's important and not a lot of people know about it is that uh there was an act that was put in place right around slavery time that essentially was the accidental killing act and this act was like, oh, if you're disciplining a slave and they die, that's not your fault. You were disciplining your slave. Um, the people that were dying were young children. They were being beat to the point where they were dying by white women, which is atrocious, um, but it's not something that a lot of people know about. And this also created this idea of white women who essentially they were pure. They were beings of like God almost. They were more preferable because their skin was lighter, um, more moral, and like somehow cleaner than the way that Black people were like presented. And as a Black woman, I actually, I was raised by a white family and I was told for the majority of my life that I was white, which is a very weird thing to be told. But when I was, I know Rachel talks about having to wear a bra at like nine, when I was six, I didn't have a chest until I turned about 13. So I had like no boobs at all. No boobs. I was flat. Um, <laughs> my mom gave me my first bra and I had to continue wearing a bra from the time that I was six to about 13. And it was atrocious. I would get these like, I had like an indent from how tight the bras were right around my chest. And when I was eight, I got my first G-string. When I was nine, I got my first thong. And when I was 11, I got my first pair of pasties. Um, did I need any of these things logically? No, but to my white mother, and I will still, I will still credit her for this for the rest of my life. Um, she continued to over-sexualize me as a young child. And it was very odd considering she was my mom, but she would put me in outfits as a young child that were just in general, like not okay for kids to be in. Um, but this is my point about this is, is that it is prevalent with many young black women. They can tell you at a pretty young age that somebody would tell you, you shouldn't be wearing that, or she's going to be trouble when she grows up or red lipstick is sexual, like just things like that. And, um, yeah, anyway, I'm going to let Rachel continue now. <laughs> First of all, I'm so sorry that you experienced that because that's like, I can't even imagine I don't know. The over-sexualization, I think, of, of women is something that gets talked about a lot um, in certain circles, but I feel like people don't often talk about how like prevalent it is specifically for women of color and all the historical things that lead right into that, you know? So somebody who often talked about the inequality between white women and black women and education was Septima points at Clark. Septima Poinsett Clark was born in 1898, and she unfortunately passed away in 1987. Um, so pretty long life there, notably, and joined the double or the NAACP. Excuse me. Originally, when she became a teacher, she was banned from teaching in South Carolina 
but she helped to protest and lift the ban on black teachers as well. So she, you know, unfortunately was fired for that. Um, as you know, a teacher, her work in activism and everything, and her participation in the NAACP and her loud voice in all of those issues really, um, unfortunately, led to her being fired as a teacher. And I think, like, it's definitely something we could talk about how, like, yes, it happened back then, but I think it definitely still happens today, too, for sure. Yeah, I think tons of people get fired from their jobs for wanting to speak out on like appropriate things. And like, I just, I think, I personally believe that jobs and personal life shouldn't like interfere. And she, like, what she was doing did affect her job, but she was doing it on her free time. It wasn't like she was like in school teaching and then going, hey, like, here's my protest. But yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's like, you know, because I know a lot of the times like there's that rule where like I don't know for example like I think teachers aren't allowed to talk about their religion with you or like their politics with you usually but yeah they're especially like I know it's like a lot it's like very much enforced in the south like because we would ask her like I you also probably grew up during this time where like Trump was getting like in office and stuff but we would ask our teachers like how they felt about the subject and they would not tell us like ever. It wasn't something that was ever brought. It wasn't something that they ever even thought about like exiting their mouth, Mm -hmm. but like they also, um, they couldn't talk about like their stance on historical events either. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. I think like, I mean, I guess I never explicitly heard my my teachers talking about their stance on historical events for the most part, obviously like I would have teachers that would say like, Oh, this was bad. Or like, this was, you know, wrong, or this was not a good thing. What have you. But, but that's really interesting. So yeah, I don't, she probably, you know, wasn't like, Hey kids. um, Yeah. Come to this protest, you know, come hang out with us. That didn't seem to be the nature of um, what was happening, but Uh, She still lost her job for it. So yeah, some other stuff about Subtima. So she talked a lot about, as we've been saying, like obviously education, but there's a lot of things that go into education, especially for people of color uh, and especially when it comes to their rights to vote and um, you know, things with redlining and uh, gerrymandering and everything that has to do with kind of the election cycle which again, is something we're still seeing a lot today. Uh, And we talked a little bit about in the first episode as well with the filibuster. So Um, a lot of the time, Black people were not allowed to go to the voting polls because of quote unquote literacy tests. And so essentially, because it was illegal to teach someone who was enslaved to read or write, um, this often really would affect people of color who were trying to vote. Because, you know, if they have these literacy tests, it's difficult to pass those literacy tests, which are made by white people, obviously, who figure out ways to gatekeep and make those literacy tests, excuse me, even more difficult and, and just hard to pass and everything. That was sort of a way for white people to, quote unquote, like, act like oh well like you know there's this literacy test all you have to do is pass the the literacy test but really that was not not a fair fight at all I don't feel like um it was like illegal to teach enslaved people how to read or write and I'm sure that 
you know, there were a lot of things going on in that time. And like, I know, like, there had to be some kind of fear that if you taught these people that were once enslaved, hey, here's how you read and write, that there would be some kind of backlash Mm -hmm. against you. So I'm sure also there were a lot of young Black people that did know how to read and write that were afraid to teach it, as well as their parents being afraid to learn because they had been penalized their entire lives for trying to learn. So I'm sure it was really scary. Yeah, that, you know, alone, like learning to read and write was in a lot of ways um, a revolutionary act, you know, in that sense. Because it was just so, yeah, you know, you have threats of violence or, you know, the fear of retaliation and everything. And you're living in, in a country that is not going to protect you. So so because of this, this rule uh, with the literacy test and just with the kind of difficulty that, uh, you know, access to literacy and access to education was creating... Uh, Septima Poinsett Clark also created this program that really taught people of color and Black people how to read and also how to write. And that was like super huge because, you know, we're in the civil rights movement and everything. And we have these literacy tests. We have other, you know, things coming into play as well in the voting systems um, and just the general fear and concerns for safety at that time and everything that that these communities experienced. So it was a huge uh, moment for the American civil rights movement. Septima also like did us the wonderful favor that has shown like in the future of how great this was, but she joined the South Christian Leadership Conference in about 1961 and took over their education and teaching department. And during the time that she was doing this, somewhere around 800 schools were made, which is a crazy amount of schools and perspective. And she was even awarded with the Living Legacy Award. But when you really think about what Septima did in perspective, this woman took like time out of her life to make sure that Black people were able to vote and be able to have a say in what happened to them in the world. And that's a really, I think that's a crazy thing that we kind of forget that we have the ability to do is that taking the, having the ability to vote on what happens is something that is so like, it's such a treasure. Like it's such a treasure. And I think people really forget that. And she wanted people to remember like how much of a treasure. It was. Yeah. I completely agree with you there. I think that like, there's also, yeah, just a lot of things that people take for granted or people don't think about, you know, like, Hey, this is a really important thing uh, or a really important resource I have that, you know, we don't think about where it comes from or, or why we have it and why other folks don't, but, but Yeah. So she was uh, obviously, as, as you can probably tell, very influential in education. And education, I like to think of education as kind of like the foundation of literally everything else, right? So everything else in our lives and our society does, in a lot of ways, link back to our education system. And the way that different identities receive education and are given access to education based on, you know, where they live or, you know, what their neighborhood is like and everything, uh, it, it really plays a huge role in not only the individual's life and how it shapes them, but how that then goes on to kind of have a ripple effect on like their communities and, uh, you know, the state, the country, like everything, right? So um, there's definitely, when we look at like education kind of as a whole, 
both historically and in the modern day. There's so many disparities by race, um, by background of class, by just, you know, identity and different, um, different people uh, are going to receive education in a lot of different ways um, and at different levels of accessibility. There, there's a, a lot that goes into it in terms of like who gets funding and uh, where are, you know, teachers applying to work? How much are teachers getting paid? Like all those things um, definitely do play a role as well. It's something that, again, is linked back to kind of intersectionality, but it's like when you look at, okay, um, you know, there are these issues in the educational system um, or the educational system isn't available to people of color. And like, why is that? You know, why do we see like less students of color going on to higher education and everything? Or we look at the school to prison pipeline, for example, all those things have to do with intersectionality of class, race, opportunity in school, um, and everything like that. So all of it is very interconnected and everything. And I think that Ms. Clark uh, was definitely someone who pointed that out and kind of brought that to light in terms of the educational structure, which is such a powerful thing, I think. Something else that's really important to think about <clears throat> about Septima is that she also, she wrote two autobiographies and she also received the South Carolina Highest Civilian Honor Award. And uh, Rosa Parks was one of her mentees, mentorees. Hmm, she mentored. <laughs> um, but back on intersectionality, something else that's really interesting to think about is the poor, poor, like person of color to military pipeline, because I was scouted by so many military officers when I was in high school. They'd be like, oh my God, you're going to get so money, so much money in a Dodge Charger. I was like, <laughs> why do I want that? That's really weird. Um, but it's also, and when you look at Black communities, and if you do, if you live in like a place where there's specifically Black communities and then white communities, or look at the poor part of your city slash town, and then the more expensive part. And I want you to tell me what you see, because when you go to the poorer part of where I live, you see gas stations and you see fast food. But you know what you don't see? You don't see fancy restaurants. You don't see gas stations. You don't see anything like that. But when you go to the more expensive part of where I live, where, you know, white people are, you see like you see doctor's offices, you see like ton, you see there's like three like um, grocery stores in like one area like that are like three minutes apart. There's car washes. Um, yeah, I think it's important like as you we come to the end of the podcast to really think about like the way that different communities and different people of color and different genders really have to go about life. Like the way that they deal with things versus the way that other people deal with things. Yeah, I definitely think that's such a good point because, you know, as we've been talking about all these different things, I think it's really also important to, when you see those things at face value and you're like, well, why is that? And you kind of question it a little bit. Because I know growing up, like sometimes you see those differences and, you know, or not growing up, but just in your everyday life, you'll see things and you won't, quite you know be like hey like you know there's there's something behind there you know there's dots to connect here but um yeah I think when we break it down and we do question and we go to find out why it's like that then we recognize like okay like, 
there's things keeping people from voting. There's bias and, and identity and everything. And um, this is where funding goes. This is where, you know, people don't have food sources available to them. Like Pauline was talking about the groceries and everything, you know, food deserts and how that goes into to everything as well. And just, you know, general poverty as well. So I have a flashback that I just thought about. Um, so we talked about the filibuster and the voting rights. And it's very interesting to know that one of the things that they were trying to get past is dun, 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 that the voting day is like a day that every employer has to let people off on. So hmm, it's almost as if it's easier for people who have more money to be able to not go to work on those days and older people to not have to go to work on those days than it is for younger people and people of color because young people have to go to work because they have to pay their bills. Old people don't because they have retirement money. Also, people who have more money from like their parents, oh, they can miss a day of work to go vote but not people of color, not young people. Anyway, so that's also something to think about. Yes. I had to say my flashback before I forgot. No, no, of course, yes. Uh, I always encourage people. I'm like, if you have something to say, I'm just going to keep rambling. And also, I know I forget things so easy. So I'm always like, just please, just stop me. <laughs> but no, yeah, that's, um, that's a really good point. And I think that like that accessibility is something that like why wouldn't you want for people so like you know education it's like okay yeah it's our civic duty to vote but like why aren't they giving us the day off then you know so well that's such a good example yeah also something I wanted to mention this kind of idea of like empowering students to learn like I think that Subtima points at Clark like very clearly wanted to encourage students to learn and to like education and to appreciate it and everything. And I think that that alone is also a really powerful tool because I know that like, it's very different, you know, usually kids who are white and have affluent parents are going to be encouraged to go on to college and students of color, most of the time don't receive that from their teachers. Um, they're not encouraged to go on and do those, those um, endeavors essentially. And I think that's something else to think about, just like learning to appreciate education, but also like learning, okay, this is what people expect of me. So what's the point of, of, you know, going any further than that? Or what's the point of, you know, this is what they expect. So like, clearly, you know, that's all I'm good enough for. Um, Cause that's also a huge part of education is that kind of solidifying in your psyche, who you are in terms of capability and um, worthiness, I think, too. So, or at least I know for me, it was like, and everything. So, yeah, I mean, a great example of like, teachers, at least believing in white people versus not believing in black people. And I have a story time, me and my friend who I'm not going to say her name, but we were in biology together. And we were both in honors biology, but it was two separate semesters. And I rode home with this girl a lot. So like, I would often like, go into that that teacher's class like at the end of the day and I passed the class with like I think a B plus and my friend passed the class with like an A minus but she told me that I was not AP honors I mean AP biology material but my friend was and she looked at me and said I doubt you'll even make it through college you'll probably get there and you'll probably drop out in your first semester 
And at the time, I was a little less motivated to do my schoolwork because I was having depressive episodes where I was sleeping for like, like literally the time that I got home from until I had to go to school. And she told my friend, who was a young, like white, very bubbly girl, hey, um, you have AP honors material and you're going to like go all the way to get your like your master's degree. Um, That girl now has a child, which there's no problem with teen mothers, but she didn't go to college and she graduated high school and that's fine. Everything is fine to dandy. I graduated high school and got my college degree at the same time. And I'm almost in getting my bachelor's degree and I'm 19. So was it really, was it really her saying, Hey, I don't think you can make it because you're not college material. Or was it her profiling me? Was it really like, I graduated high school with a um, 4.7 GPA. Like she graduated high school with a 4.1. And I also had taken the most technological classes in my high school. I was supposed to get a sash for it on my graduation. And the only reason I did it was because of COVID and because we had to graduate really weirdly. Fuck COVID. Oh my God. Yeah. It really, it still upsets me. That whole, that whole conversation that she had between us really upset me because I was like, I was like, why did she even say that? I was like, because that I don't want to like, cause I didn't have the time to do things because I was depressed and I wasn't able to do them. Like she didn't even take the time to ask or think to herself, oh, maybe this girl can't do her schoolwork. She just said, oh, this is just another degenerate who doesn't want to do her schoolwork, which was so like, I don't know. It just kind of goes to show like what we're talking about and how it's true. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think like also just the idea of like you had a B minus or a B, right? So like that's not bad. That's not bad at all. Like, I don't know why they... Why I hate that. I, I just, graduated from college, like my associate's degree, with a 3.8 out of a 4.0. Like I and I have a hundred percent pass rate. Like in <laughs> high school, college, and like university, I have a hundred percent pass rate. In my first two years of high school, I mean in my my high school GPA and my college GPA, first two years, they were off the charts. I was amazing. And like, it just, oh my God, it just, it makes me laugh so hard that she said that to me. Honestly, no, screw her. Hot girl scholarship. Good for you. And like, obviously you're like so smart. What a butthole. Truly. Anyway, we hope you had a great time listening to us. And this is probably the end of the podcast for this week. Next week though, we hope to talk about um, more influential lgbtq events that happened in like the 20th century that have to do with black history month (laughs) and we're going to be talking about um small black owned businesses on our instagram story so tune in for that yeah so we really hope you guys enjoyed listening to this podcast with us today um and we always love talking about cool people on this podcast so Uh, I think we covered some super cool people this week. Tune into our Instagram because we'll be sharing those cool small businesses. And we also are going to drop some uh, mutual aid requests. If anybody is like, hey, it's February, you know, and I don't have a Valentine, but I like want to give somebody a gift. Maybe your love language is gift giving. I don't know. (laughs) Um, You can totally donate to those awesome mutual aid funds. Um, it's a great way to really see exactly where um, your assistance is going. 
and it's a great resource. Uh, with that being said, stay tuned on our Instagram. That is at Gen Z's Guide to Politics, all one word. And yeah. Yeah. You know where to find us? We're on Spotify and Anchor and hopefully Apple soon. Um, see you next time, dudettes and dudes and dude thems. Do thems. I feel like that's not girls, gays, and, and days, right? Yeah. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.